this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? All right, we are. We're we're back. We're back. We've been away. Good morning. Good afternoon. And we've, good evening. We've been away, both literally and figuratively. Where have you been? Where have we been? We went to Florida. Mm. How's Florida? Well, I was Warm, there. Warmer. Yeah. What are you asking me for? You were there, <laughs> but we had we had a little bit of a different experience there. Yeah, I took my sarongs. <clears throat> I bought a little bit of Southeast Asia to Florida. Mm-hmm. I got a few looks. I I, I don't even have. I can't even. So one of the things that one of the things that I love about you is the way that you sort of pick and choose the ways that your sort of culture of origin and adopted cultures from your life experience, you sort of plug them in in different parts of your world as if. So for example, you you will say things like I don't need a beach chair. People from Australia don't do that. As I if people, I don't know if I said Australia. Well, you said something about like they just sit on the sand. Now, I've been to Australia many times, and I've been to the beach. Uh-huh. They sit on chairs just like other people do. <laughs> I don't remember it. It's very strange, your memory. Mm. I could just tell you that Italian girls from New Jersey do not sit directly on the sand without a towel or, I mean, preferably a chair. Right. <laughs> anyway, this is just a bizarre what else? start what to a podcast. What else has been going on with you? I <laughs> submitted my thesis when? yesterday. Yesterday at 3.03 p.m. But it just got accepted, right? The, from the library. The, the formal sort of acceptance of the formatting for publication. Was, what's, the, what's the difference? What's the process? The, what do you mean? Well, what's the, what does the library accept it? You know, that, that part. Mm. Um, it goes into the permanent archives. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so you're done. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I can't. I honestly, I can't. I can't actually believe it. Mm. Four years. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Four years. Tell us about the journey. Um, we just talked. It was interesting. We talked about this last night. Mm. We took a little. We took a little break because once my submission happened, I went to the woods. I just had to go to the woods with the dog, and then we went out to dinner because I couldn't actually think. <laughs> there was nothing left. There's just a little bit of mush. Um, the process has been a long one. So, you know, it's really interesting because the um, the the program is pretty intense. It's a um, it's a terminal master's. It took four years, um, and it's a series of eight week intensives. So it's three years of coursework, and a, and then however long it takes to write the thesis, which is uh, is long. Well, you um, turned into a. A, a dynamic, focused monster, and pumped it out. Well, and you know the thing is that over the course of those of the last four years, those classes, you know, it's it's really interesting to think about sort of how much having a system is really important. Mm. Um, I know I I, I, la- I joke about this, but someone on our team said, oh, I didn't realize you were organized or used a spreadsheet. And I was just like, wait, for real? And it, it has stuck with me as kind of almost the most random thing that has ever been said to me, which mm. probably not. But, but the amount of 
structure that I have built into how I manage <laughs> my world. But like for for the three years when I had coursework, every Saturday, so it, Fridays at midnight, the week's work would open, mm. and I would get up at you know 5.30 on a Saturday morning, download all of the PDFs of the material, find all of the reading that I had to do for the week, set a schedule for how I was going to manage it. And then I had a paper due every Friday. So like a paper would be due Friday by midnight and the next tranche of materials would dump at midnight, you know? So it was, it was a lot. I mean, when I think back on it, I'm, yeah, it was, it was a lot. No, I can can confirm that. Yeah. It's a lot. And can I just say the one thing that was really funny? Yeah. And and capital L. I mean, because a lot is two words, even though people no, no, like to put it as one word. <laughs> right. There, there we go. There's another <laughs> strange custom that you claim to have adopted. Um, I tried. Do you remember that I tried for one of my courses to use paper? Because I actually prefer paper. I, I really struggle. Um, for those of you who have seen my face, I wear big glasses because my vision is challenged. And um, I really struggle with all the digital, oh, yeah. you know, I've, I've had to have so much screen time. And um, I tried, do you remember the, one of the courses I tried to use paper? No, what happened? My, oh my I actually God. don't remember. I killed a forest. It was unbelievable because I printed everything out. That's when we bought that. We bought a cheap print or one, you called it the workhorse printer where we could print hundreds of pages. And I, I was literally print. printing mm. hundreds of pages a week. And then my office was like littered with these stacks and I sticky notes everywhere. And I, I was like, forget it. I can't. Mm. I just can't do it. I just recycled all of that paper. I need a wheelbarrow to get it out. I don't know how people can do that anymore. So what have you, uh, so have you learned skills? Yeah, totally. Yeah. What are the skills, forget about the content, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what other skills you've learned? So I want to say that the biggest takeaway for me is that there... Uh, let me think about how to say this, because I'm thinking about writing, writing the thesis. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, there's almost a formula that I... It took me a really long time to recognize. And the formula is, is sort of this this is what I'm going to say. Here's how I'm going to say it. These are all the other people who have said it in one way or another. I'm adding to the conversation with an analysis of this information and then summing up, this is what has been said. And this is the longest format that I've ever done in this way. You know, it's, I had a prologue, an introduction, which was a lot of background, you know, sources and methods, three chapters, each of which had, you know, sections in it, then the the conclude, well, the epilogue and the conclusion. And it was, there's a way in which sort of the remembering of all of the information, the flow, making sure there's no repetition, you know, it's, it's kind of a lot. And mm-hmm. I realized that that sort of what appeared to be formulaic to me in writing shorter format papers then became really important in a long format because your reader has to remember what's already been told. And even though you become a subject matter expert, uh, it's, it's hard for other people to remember all of the things that have been newly introduced. And, and it's funny because 
as I now think back to how hard it was for me in the very beginning of my coursework, it was that I didn't have reference points for the Anshan regime in <laughs> history. I didn't even know what that meant. Do you know what I mean? Like, it took me a minute. Right. And, and I, I, In other words, you kind of found yourself, what am I doing in this department? Well, some, yeah. It was all new. It right. was brand spanking new. Mm. And and so that when <laughs> I wrote my thesis and, and sent it to my advisor, to whom my material was brand spanking new, his feedback was so important because he would say, I don't know what this means. I don't know what this words mean, word means. Which or, is common to you. Totally, totally common to me. Right. And that's actually what I think, while it's still fresh, there is this way in which... I'm sitting at the in the brackish water of what happened in in 19th century medicine where homeopaths walked away with their own sort of knowledge and assumptions and narrative and the orthodox folks walked away with their assumptions and narrative each of whom has an opinion of each other as if totally separate and that's not true mm-hmm. they were brackish waters mm-hmm. and I am I am still sort of stunned by how much of what has come through in the game of telephone in homeopathy really doesn't match history. Well, it doesn't. Can I just change that? Yeah, sure. Well, it doesn't match the primary sources right. that you've been diving through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, am I right? Because I, I want you to talk about this because it seems to me because I've had a sneak peek and a glance and a bit of a read of what you've been writing, and uh, it doesn't match the existing historiography. Right. I know what that word means. That yeah. means the the history that's been written by the historians. Yes. And I'm, I, I'm stonkingly amazed by that. Mm. Me too. Can I ask you something, though, before we get to that? Yeah, yeah. Because um, you said something, and I just want to... I want to um, reiterate this, <laughs> dear listener, because <laughs> Denise is weird. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, I, I can't, how weird. I just want to just, just say this because, I mean, and I, I'm speaking from my own experience, but I've, I've watched and actually read quite a bit about writers. You know, writers often are reflective people, and in, in interviews you'll hear a writer talk about how they write, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, or musicians, actually. I think I, for some reason, once on YouTube, I found Marla, you know, a documentary on Marla. And he would walk out of the house every day, walk down to the bottom of the garden to his little rotunda, and he would sit and write music. And then he'd get up at 10.30, he'd walk back to the house for his cup of tea, and he'd walk back down. You know, there's, there's just things about writers that are quirky. And what's amazing to me about you, and I did not know this until really the last say, three months and definitely the last four weeks, is that what you write is complete. It's almost as if it doesn't need a draft. Now, I know you sent it for comments, but that's uh, part of an academic process. But what comes out of your head is it's done and it flows. Now, from experience... (laughs) Yeah, I've, I've read your work. Yeah, I, I know. But, I mean, you, you, I don't know that you've seen me. Because you've not seen me write any of those books, have you? Because uh, it's chaotic. Yeah. And it's like, because it's spoken, it's a paragraph here, that gets moved up there, then it gets split in half, and that gets moved to that chapter. And 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's a totally, it's a very different process that requires 285 drafts. Yeah. And yours doesn't. That's astonishing. And I, I don't have context because that's just how, that's just how I work. Mm. But like, but I'm also, when I'm in it, I'm in it and there's no talking to me about anything else. Yeah, right. It reminds me of Shelby Foote. Oh, gosh. Have you talked on the podcast about Shelby Foote? No. Shelby Foote is, uh, you probably know if you're in these parts, or some people probably don't know. Now, he was, he, in his, uh, he's born in 1932. He's an American writer. He calls himself a novelist, but he's not really. He's a, a historian, and he wrote those three amazing books about the Civil War from the, and he began in 1954 and he finished in 1974 took him 20 years and it's a million 1.5 million words oh my gosh incredible and anyway long story short uh he's the amazing southern voice in ken burns documentary on the civil war yeah and that, I, I think that's now is that 90s or early 2000s it's i have no idea 20 years i ago. didn't even know about it till you mentioned it oh it's incredible i'm watching it for the second time oh, i know and um and so shelby foot in an interview just described how he writes and it's how you write it's almost, but he uses a quill. I would use a quill if I could. Are you Cursive. kidding? Um, but I, I mean, I think in all fairness, that was how I earned my living before becoming a homeopath was so, as a writer. Right. And so it's like, it's just a part of my, you know, it's a part of my process. Um, and also I think being a reader, you know, I, you know, I would hide as a child in the basement to not have to go to summer camp so that I could read at a flashlight. I just would, you know. It's just part of my geek nature. Anyway, I don't want to talk about that. I well, I want to talk about that because you need to contextualize that because that sounds like you're, <laughs> you're in um, like Harry Potter unlocked <laughs> under the under the thing. But you would you would hide because yeah. summer camp for you would be a day trip, right? Yeah, it was, and I didn't want to go. I would rather I just would rather stay home and read books. But you so. couldn't read up in the in the public part of the house. You'd have to hide, right? Well, because they. I would pretend I went to camp and I would just stay and read books. Anyway, but so this... this <laughs> All right, don't talk about that. No. Um, but process is really important. Yeah. And, it, and I think... So there are a couple of things that I, I was thinking about along the way that, you know, homeopathy students or... Homeopathy is really hard. And... And I think it has been made harder because people, it's been a game of telephone where charismatic teachers along the way have put their own spin on it and made it into now 50 million things as opposed to one thing. Mm. Now, what complicates that is that it is one thing, but that one thing that Hahnemann created over the course of his lifetime, right? So when we put him into historical context, he, you know, he's born 1755, lives to 1843. But homeopathy really had its heyday sort of just before and in, say, the 25 years after Hahnemann died. Hahnemann was trying to put the brakes on some changes, but he died even before the college, the Homeopathic Medical College of Pennsylvania, really was started. It was started after Hahnemann died. Mm. So there was the Allentown Academy, which was a postgraduate educational experience 
taught in German to doctors already, that folded a year after Hahnemann died. And then there were seven years. I might have my dates a little yeah, bit yeah. off. Um, I think it didn't last till 1837 because of the crash. But they, they still pumped out some diplomas after that. Yeah, and Hahnemann was asking for the diploma for Melanie. That's right. And, and so that's got to be 1840, 1840, 1841. Yeah. yeah. So, because there were seven years of no homeopathy education in America. Right. So whatever that date is. But so, but the reason I say this is because Hahnemann was already saying, hey, hey, don't, you know, there's, there's new scientific information coming in. Be selective with it. Don't, don't set it aside, but be selective. Don't. Don't leave this philosophy built on the universal laws, built on the laws of nature that can be applied to the human. Don't leave that aside in favor of new shiny reductionistic toys. And I think what I got out of this, the, the biggest takeaway is you Homeopathy is going to always be difficult because you cannot ignore scientific advances. You can't. You can't put the reductionistic toothpaste back in the tube. And and so the the two main characters in my in my research, it really boiled down to Constantine Herring and Adolphus Lippi. And they each represented, it was interesting because they each would consider themselves to be staunchly Hahnemannian, but Herring is Hahnemannian with a scientific twist. And Lippi is really fighting to keep the, the universal laws in sight. Here's where the historiography tells, a, as you call it, a porcupine, <laughs> is that there was a, there was a fight, Hahnemann, or, sorry, Herring and Lippi had a fight. No, yeah, Al's raising his fists. They, I don't think they actually duked it out. <laughs> but they did part ways for a bit. Yeah, they did. Well, for a bit, till the end of their lives. They never rekindled their friendship, and they went their separate ways in homeopathy. Herring is a really interesting character because he was advocating for the adoption of new scientific procedures. He was a scientist, and he declared himself a disciple of Hahnemann, and, and I found it was really interesting because in, in all the primary source research that I did, it was like, well, you know, how, how do we know what these people thought? And I would find little bits and bobs along the way. And in the preface, Herring wrote a preface to the third American edition of the Organon mm. where he says, I am a disciple of Hahnemann. However, <laughs> however. Hahnemann would agree with me because he says, you know, test your theories. And even, you know, to the great master, I would say, I only take your theories not at face value, but based on how things play out. Okay, you can say anything, but what you do is really, you know, what's important. And what I kind of came to is that Herring, you know, he was informed by his, his own life and his experiences you know, starting from when he had his dissecting injury in 1821, 21-22. He was, he was writing the refute to homeopathy. He gets this injury from dissecting a suicide victim. He's, 
none of the, you know, allopathic or whatever, the interventions of the time, calomel, leeches, uh, silver nitrate, none of, none of it helped. And so one of his friends, who was a medical doctor but also was really into Hahnemann, says, try this and gives him a dose of arsenicum, and that cures his dissecting wound. And then he becomes a fanatic. But Herring, when he was in Germany... And he was studying medicine. He was studying under people who were experts in pathology. Mm -hmm. So, like, his medical education is already down the line of pathology. So, even though he's taken on homeopathy, he's taken it on through Materia Medica. He's, I'm not convinced that he's ever fully on board with Hahnemannian philosophy. So, it's interesting because... Fast forward to when Herring and Lippi are both teaching in the Homeopathic Medical College of Pennsylvania. Herring is the philosophy guy, mm. and Lippi is the materia medica guy. But Herring says, if I could, I would devote all my time to Herring's guiding symptoms, because materia medica is where he is. And so it's like nothing is ever clean in history, just like in human life right? And so what happens is over the course of time, people pick the bits and bobs, as I had to do in writing my thesis. You you pick things that forward your narrative. Well, what was the core issue between the disputes with Herring and Lippi? Well, it has to do with pathology. Mm. But because... Oh, how, I want to say it in sort of the shortest and cleanest way possible, but... Pathology doesn't mean herring, yes, lippy, no, but that's the way that people have made it seem. They go, oh, well, lippy says all you need are the law of similars. You don't need pathology. Okay, so what did people do with in that? A, in a case. In a when case. You're analyzing a case. Yeah, but it's, it's not that simple. And he was a medical doctor. And, and this is where I think people get it wrong because they use lippy's argument as a way to say you don't need medical sciences in homeopathy. Just go with the law of similars. Well, similars and homeopathic theory has become stuff that has nothing to do with homeopathy. And so they take it and it's like, you know, everybody's been lipified. But in reality, they still taught pathology. Hmm. Even in the years, the year that Herring left to say homeopathy needs to be more scientific or they're going to call you quacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They still taught pathology. They still taught using the textbook of the guy that they fired, Rao, Mm -hmm. or who, they didn't technically fire him, he didn't get a chair in pathology. So I don't understand how this argument has been forwarded, right? So what I did was I went to, in the archives, and I went through the announcements of every year of the college, every single year that it existed, Mm -hmm. and I looked at what were they teaching, who was teaching it, what were the required textbooks, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so then I found the the letters between Herring and Lippi. Well, it was Herring wrote to Lippi, to Guernsey, and to um, the the delegates of the true friends of homeopathy. And it, what it really comes down to is an interpretation of science in the nineteenth century. And I think that that's a really interesting argument. And I think that we can't fully understand it without really looking at what was happening in science, and how were the science, the proponents of quote-unquote science, which is basically allopathic science, it's the reductionistic science, 
How, where were they going? But it's it, but isn't it laboratory science? Yes. It, it, it's about isn't it about you know be, sorry to interrupt, but I mean if as no. I understand it, if I'm if if there is a and there, there had to be a clear difference of opinion between Lippy and Herring. Totally. But it's not about science, I suppose. But it is about the emphasis on the, what's going on in the patient when we're analysing their case and the reason that they're ill, the yeah. reason that they've got their problem. Yeah, it was a it was a more subtle conversation. Right, and so in let's say in science, as you head to the back end of the nineteenth century. You've got the beginning of laboratory science, mm-hmm. blood work, germs, germ theory, and Lippy saying not interested in that. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Okay. And and the timing is interesting because it's so so it's really super complicated because and this is one of the things that I had to tackle that was very difficult to cross the muggle line with, and that is there was, there's an arc in, in the uptake of new information that happens over time, mm-hmm. yeah? So the way that the allopathic arc has been documented through their historiography, which only includes us as a peripheral nuisance, mm. basically. Actually, I shouldn't say that. That's really unfair. Some historians have, have actually noted that homeopaths were way more scientific in other words, if science is about reproducible experimentation, that's, you know, that's baked into the cake. Huh. And, but that's not how they looked at it because they didn't understand how Hahnemann, as a, an empiricist from day one, yeah, the, um, you know, his first paper on homeopathy was called The Medicine of Experience, huh. right? That was what, 1796. Mm-hmm. So, but what they, but the way that we find our place in history as scientists is more about institutions, right? Because that's that's what history was looking at for a long time, was sort of the institutionalization of, you know, of of how science and medicine sort of made their way through the arc of, of time. And so the way that the history of medicine, which has its own complicated history, which we can't get into, Mm. but which was super helpful for me to learn, Mm. right? But the history of medicine looking at the 19th century, says first you, you sort of come over the hump from the, the um, 18th to the 19th century and everybody is holding on to rational systems. In other words, there wasn't enough sort of technology and understanding to break things apart and it's still holding on to these Hippocratic ideals. Yeah, So these rational sim- systems were systems that were looking for answers to how things work. No. You mean theories on disease? Not theories on disease, theories on sort of health and well-being, because it was still attached to the Hippocratic thing, right? Because, and this is where it gets really um, uh, semantically based, yeah? Because there, so it goes in the allopathic realm, people are holding on to old systems, and then they go, okay, uh, we got to pull away from these systems. How do we do that? We do it at the bedside. By looking at what's happening with the patient, and we become empirical. Mm-hmm. But this means something different than it does to homeopaths. And this is, of course, what made me bang my head against the wall in the beginning, where I'm writing papers and I'm getting feedback that says, no, 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 you're misunderstanding this. And I'm like, wait, how? Empiricism is X, mm. right? It is the actual experimentation, and I know it as a homeopath. Mm. But it didn't happen 
in allopathic medicine until the sort of the early to middle part of the century as they're letting go of rational systems. And this is when the sort of French bedside medicine is influencing American medical behavior. Okay, then they leave that behind Mm -hmm. when pathology comes along. That's when it moves into the laboratory or the laboratory, as you would say. That happens later. Germ theory really happens. So germ theory becomes bacteriology, becomes microbiology, 18, late 1870s, you've got Pasteur, you've got Koch, you've got uh, Lister, mm-hmm. right? And then you pop over to the 20th century, and then it's a whole different ballgame. Okay, now, homeopathy, you know, people say, oh, there were homeopathic hospitals, and they were operating, and everything was great. And then, you know, Flexner comes along. Flexner comes along in 1920. Problems in homeopathy started in 1860, Mm -hmm. 1870, Mm -hmm. 1880 for sure. Mm -hmm. And 1881 is where the huge rift really becomes apparent because homeopathy had already started to um, cannibalize itself. It was having its own problems. And it wasn't just, do we adopt pathology? It's much more complicated than that, right? High potency, low potency, spiritualist, non-spiritualist. But even if you leave that out, Mm -hmm. and that's what I chose to do in my paper, was to say, I'm not even going to touch Kent right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to touch the high, low potency, because that that was a subsequent argument. And that argument, you can almost see as a parallel to uptake of science. Because the high-low argument, so for those who aren't familiar with the high-low argument, it's do you prescribe sort of in the low sort of X potency, so sort of adopting the very basics of homeopathic pharmacology, or do you go into the more, you know, sort of dynamic um, understandings of potency? That's a real argument, and that was happening both here in America, it was happening in England, mm. which was very interesting. You look at people like Clark, right, and Hughes. <clears throat> but I think a more compelling argument is... And Burnett. And Burnett, right? So, uh, um, and, and Burnett, I mean, we, we can't even sort of open that door right now. But, but what becomes a compelling argument is, you know, if homeopathy wants to be a part of well, I was going to say a part of the system. It's not even that. It's that homeopaths don't have a basic understanding and agreement of what we do. And what was so fascinating was as I started to really deconstruct primary source materials, I found a very clear evidence of the mixing of everything that literally resulted in remedies medicines for which there is no consistency on who made them, how they made them, or what. And the example that I used in my paper was around, well, one of the examples was around pyrogenium, septicemia, Mm -hmm. right? These are remedies that are made from either the byproduct of rotten meat or pus from someone who had gone septic. And then they became interchangeable. Those are not interchangeable substances. That was really interesting to me because I didn't know that because I've always gone, oh, pyrogen. Like, you know, when we're going traveling to somewhere, (laughs) Denise says, don't forget the pyrogen. And, of course, that's a remedy that was made from beef, 
that was left out in the sun or the rain or the whatever. No, in the sun. In, in the a, sun. In, in a bag uh-huh. so that it was creating an anaerobic environment <laughs> so that it would become disgusting, yeah. literally. But you know how they got to that? And this is, I, I found this to be like really cool. Homeopaths, we, like a homeopath who's practicing from Hahnemann's idea of similar, not exact, cool. yeah, says, my assumptions are analogous. In other words, I'm I'm not becoming reductionistic and isopathic. I am looking to say what a homeopathic remedy that cures by analogy, right? That is a similar does not it doesn't matter what the exciting cause is. So you can get sepsis from a dissecting wound, mm-hmm. as I've learned from the spider bite. Mm-hmm. You can get it from uh, an infection in the peritoneal cavity. You can get sepsis from uh, an incomplete miscarriage. Hmm. Right? So there are a whole bunch of different ways. Now, of course, I've traced the, you know, had to study the history of sepsis, but also the ways that homeopaths interacted with it. So you've got one group of homeopaths who said, oh, well, sepsis, we understand this as... In, in a post-surgical situation, the surgical room, when there's infection, smells like rotten meat. It smells like putrefaction. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we should have a substance that is putrid. That creates putrid. That creates that. And they did. Mm-hmm. So pyrogenium made from rotten meat becomes a remedy for an incomplete abortion. Typhoid, mm. septic typhoid, mm. a dissecting wound, mm-hmm. anything for which the symptoms match. Okay. What's happening with herring and swan? Yeah. Uh, let's potentize septic blood. That's a totally different animal. It's, a, it's, it's quite a, I mean, you can, you can see how the leap happens, but to understand the difference of thinking yeah. is really critical, isn't it? Totally critical. And and so what happens? So Swan writes to Herring and says, have you potentized septic blood? And if so, can I get it in the highest potency that you have? Herring writes back and he says, no, I haven't because septic blood is going to be different depending on the cause of sepsis. Mm-hmm. However, there's a guy in Chicago, Wormley, who's a chemist, Maybe if we send it to him, he can, and now I'm paraphrasing, further reduce it. He can find the commonality in whatever the, the finest, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the most reductionistic way possible. Okay, so that's how Herring wanted to solve the problem of sepsis. Now, those two remedies, the information has been joined. Yeah. That is... That is that is not good. No. No. Not good at all. I mean, this is, you know, as a person who had sepsis. <laughs> well, as a as a person that relies on their repertory, as a person that wants to look into materia medica and rely on yeah. that, that 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 is that that seems somewhat speculative and unreliable. Yep. Yeah. So, okay, so we we got here because we went through the arc of, I started with saying the arc of what happened in allopathic evolution in the 19th century is like, okay, we're going to get away from systems, 
beginning of the century. Uh, we're going to experiment at the bedside and then, oh, laboratory. Great. Right. And what happens toward the end of the century when they get into the laboratory is the terminology changes. So I did this whole sort of philological exploration, which was super fun. And that is looking at the different ways in which words were used over time to track scientific progress. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that um, it went from natural to normal. Health went from being in a state of nature, being in harmony with nature, to being normal. In other words, matching laboratory results. Now, if we just... If, I the, always thought normal was a cycle on the washing machine. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway. Oh, this is why I keep you around, honestly. There's no, there's no natural button on the washing machine. There is not. So this idea... Oh, I, I just want to sort of look at this from current... Like, where we are now. What happens when a client comes to you and says, my thyroid labs are off? Mm. They have been told that they're out of the range of normal. Mm. My blood pressure is high. My whatever. I mean, and I think when we use examples of the endocrine system is the, you know, this is where Lippy really comes in handy mm. because he says, you've got to look at the big picture. See, I would, I would consider Lippy to be much more interested in a larger totality when appropriate. He's saying, don't start at the smallest totality. Understand the bigger picture. Now, where it becomes complicated is what happens if you've got old provings, old information about medicines that based on the amount of knowledge available at the time that they were proved or the language used to describe dysfunction in the body, there isn't a knowledge of the organ affinities. Okay? So I came across case examples. So I, you know, in addition, I also read all the journals which was so much fun. Mm. It was really amazing to read the journals and the conversations that were being had in real time as homeopaths debated how to take up this information. And so I can't remember um, who made this argument, but they were talking about a case where it, it would have been someone on the herring side of things said, okay, but you've got the externalization of symptoms and it's, you know, elevated heartbeat and, you know, the auscultation or the listening to the chest cavity, you know, reveals fluid, da-da-da. Well, do you, what, if it's the heart, it's one set of remedies. If it's the lungs, it's another set of remedies. If the pathology would tell you, is there, you know, examination would tell you that there's a pathological impediment and you might be prescribing on something for which, you know, you are going at the wrong organ system, or you know, you're prescribing on the results of the disease as opposed to the organic disease. Can I give you an example? Yes. Yeah. So there's this um, famous, amazing case. I always teach it when I'm uh, teaching the work of James Quantum Burnett. Yeah. And it's the case of the uh, the uh, it's a I think a forty year old man, fifty year old man, with a tumor that went from his left nipple to the hip. And some massive tumor creating a whole lot of other symptoms. And um, at the end of, and the, uh, and, and uh, he writes really beautifully, seven 
seven physicians, mainly from Guy's Hospital, had attended the patient and, um, you know, had basically said, no, we're done. And yeah. so um, through uh, physical examination mm-hmm. and through his knowledge of anatomy, physiology, and at that time... Because he was a master anatomist. Yeah. He... Um, Changed uh, changed the focus of the treatment, yep. and the client got in alternation, which um, uh, Burnett also said it was a mistake. But I was desperate and yeah. had uh, nothing else to do. I gave Ballas Paranus yep. because he'd had a fall ten years before uh-huh. on this side. But additionally, he got Cianothus one X. Wow! And so it was alternating Ballas Paranus, Cianothus, massively low potencies. Right. And then over the next four or five months, the, the, he, he just started to urinate. He was urinating gallons and gallons and gallons as the tumor shrunk. Wow. All of the skin peels off of his hands. <laughs> he starts to sit upright in bed. He's able to walk. And gradually, you know, it's not a straight line. There's a skin rash that comes along as well. And, uh, you know, but a, a tr- a, an astonishing transformation and restoration of health. Wow. <clears throat> through that and so he was saying but if i'd followed the fact that he had heart palpitations if right. i just followed the symptoms i would have been prescribing digitalis or i would have been prescribing cactus yeah or one of the heart remedies exactly which was which was a feature of the of the case at the time but i didn't because it was from the spleen yeah and it was from the fall full stop mm. it's so important isn't it i well, mean it is and so there's so what and, and, that teaches us is we have to we have to be really um, uh, considerate of the adoption of new knowledge, and 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 we have to figure out how it fits into what is ultimately an amazing system. You know right? what it makes me think? What we've got to push back against the students that say, "Oh, why do we have to learn anatomy and physiology? <laughs> oh my God, ninety four hours!" You know, it's like. Are Which, you kidding me? I mean, I would have done anything to be able to yeah. have appropriate homeopathic medical education. Which, by the way, was the way that education was delivered. I mean, you know, I've got all you know going through and looking at all of those books. I mean, they all learned surgery and you know chemistry and all of that. Now, interestingly, <laughs> at one point in Philadelphia, there were two hospitals. Yeah, you remember I was telling you last night in the limitations section of my paper. So when you're writing, you know, a thesis, you say, okay, this is everything that I've done. What else would I have done if I had more time or, you know, whatever? And I said, oh, what I would have loved would have been to look at the two homeopathic hospitals, one of which followed sort of the Herring way that became Hahnemann Hospital that existed up until they took the sign down recently. Mm. There was a Lippy Hospital, which you hear very little about. I didn't even know about there was there's a, a brief mention in Julian Winston. He says that it was talked about in the newspapers at the time. It was a big conversation. I I searched and I was unable to find mm. anything in the newspapers, which I will continue to look for. But that hospital was utilizing what we would now consider to be best practice best practices in the care of the body, not just the homeopathic remedies, right? But good food ventilation, all of the supportive things. 
What I did find was in, in the homeopathic journals, uh, the women's auxiliary that raised the money for that hospital, they were talking about how hard it was to get nurses and doctors who were A, trained in homeopathy appropriately, and B, wanted to continue on with that care and not sort of get all of the newest modern training. Like they were getting all the training that they needed to be a really good homeopathic physician mm. or nurse, but not, you know, whatever the latest bells and whistles were. Mm. And so it's interesting that the, you know, the the organization that went on into modernity was just... Was the scientific one. Was the scientific one that just adopted all the new things that ultimately became a leader. You know, Hahnemann Hospital was a leader in a variety of medical things. I think, it, I can't remember if something to do with... The kidneys. I, I, that's not my area of expertise. Anyway, but um, that was really super interesting to see. And I would have loved to have really gotten into patient records in each of those hospitals to see what, what were the homeopaths doing at the bedside. You were going deep down that, that hole, that rabbit hole. Wow. I think that would be fascinating. <laughs> right? Great. Yeah. Why is this relevant? What, what's the... What's the What's the meaning for us? I mean, the more I learn about homeopathy, and, you know, this, of course, we're now talking about my, you know, four years in, in the muggle world. Um, After because, your 25 years in the... Well, my other, you know, my real um, uh, my real love and where what I'm going back to now in my research, which I already started again yesterday, as soon as I was done, was like reading some of the old stuff, which is what, what, where, how did Hahnemann get to where he did? Because I think if we could really understand homeopathy better, and if we could adopt the appropriate innovations, technological and medical innovations, we can really change medicine. And as I look at all of the different ways homeopathy is being taught, through and no fault of the people who are you know teaching it, because I think about all the things that I've taught that now I that I know now that I've sort of learned more, I'm like, wow, that's a much more nuanced. There's a much more nuanced approach needed. I, I think we would do we will do better to understand what homeopathy is and was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So my research that goes back into Hahnemann's, you know, discoveries, so going back to the 8th century Islamic, you know, chemistry um, and coming forward. And then, you know, where my thesis took off was, you know, was around Hahnemann's death and sort of post-Hahnemannian homeopathy and looking at, you know, America is the place where homeopathy was meant to really thrive, right? The new medicine for the new world. And what did we do that set it off its path? What can we do now that here we are in the 21st century, where I would argue homeopathy is needed much more than ever, you know, autoimmune disease, and all of these ways in which the reductionistic paradigm does not work, right? How can we then say, okay, good, this is Lippy's moment, this is Lippy's moment. How can we then take from all of the advances to really work with homeopathy as it was meant to be? And 
and not to create something brand new. I mean, what I see happening when we get, you know, students who have studied in, you know, from in other interpretations of homeopathy or even more clients we get in our teaching clinic who have been given 10 million nosodes, you know, prescribed according to a reductionistic isopathic paradigm. It's just not homeopathy. Mm. Homeo detox, you know, detoxing for every vaccine and drug a person has taken, it's not homeopathy. I'm not saying it's wrong, mm. but it's, it's, it's isopathy, somethingopathy. Somethingopathy. And I just see its incredible relevance right now. Because I think, you know, looking around, the, the, the debates around the relevance of the use of nosodes and isopathy have always been around, but not in the way that they have been in more recent times oh with the gosh. astonishing, astonishing bombardment of patients, clients that... You know, we're we're seeing in our clinic. You know, when when what is it that that there was a kid that came who was three years old, having had seventy five remedies, Over eighteen months or something, eighteen months old, more than seventy remedies. People were turning up with spreadsheets. The hardest cases in my practice yeah. are people who have been given mm. nosode after nosode after nosode after nosode after nosode. These detoxification protocols that we have no evidence. There is no clinical evidence as to how this works. Can I tell you what came across my desk yesterday? Um, and it is, uh, I'm a part of a study that's going on in Australia at the moment. Are you now? I am. Uh, and the study is around traditional evidence, mm. traditional, uh, traditional, traditional medicine, and... Um, and it, it's part of a very interesting... Um, uh, a broader strategy of linking homeopathy to traditional, quote, traditional medicine. You know, you know that um, traditional, you know, the homeopathy is actually classified with the World Health Organization as part of the, it's because it's, there's no real classification for complementary medicine. We're part of traditional medicine mm -hmm. and so there's this interesting process going on at the moment of trying to create a structure that not only defines traditional medicine but um, speaks about how it's um, can be implemented how it can be articulated how it can be relevant in different social contexts and different cultures and stuff but would you put homeopathy in the category of traditional medicine uh, right now yeah i would Exactly, and 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 here's why. Well, there's a bunch of reasons why I can't quite remember all of those, all of the uh, of the categories. But a traditional medicine, you know, you you'd think about say um, traditional Maori people in New right, Zealand. That's or exactly you, Aboriginal medicine or ab native. That's right, yeah. or Mongolian shamanism or right. or Tibetan medicine. Um, and and you go, well, hang on, no, it's not because it's well, it's Western German nineteenth century medicine, and and from a from a historical point of view, and it's a Western medicine from a geographical point of view, but of course its application is incredibly broad. But the point is that tra traditional medicine relies on uh, an authority. It relies on mm. uh, a, a historical authority, which is passed on down the line. And I, I started to think about this, and I mean I'll leave it there because it's just kind of fermenting away. 
But I wonder if, uh, if, if considering that the application of homeopathy as a traditional medicine is defined by um, those things that, that, that um, are relevant for traditional medicine, I think it could be a way forward for us. I'm going to have to think about that because there are mm. parts of it that don't make sense. Because what came to my mind mm. as you started talking about it is that it comes down to the definition of science. You know, because... Yeah. Well, because I think about... So there's there's a way in which... And maybe I still just have a historian's brain on, which I'll need to... I need to sort of shake the dust out of that a little bit. But, you know, there's sort of this way in which medicine has been bifurcated into sort of orthodox and heterodox, meaning orthodox, allopathic, you know, science, and then everything else. (laughs) And we've been put, homeopaths have been put in the everything else category, when in reality... Well, I don't know. I, I I can actually think of a few... I could come at it from a few different perspectives, so I'm going to... Let's come back to that. I think we should. Here's what I've taken, uh, my big takeaway. The title of our next book, Homeopathy, A Peripheral Nuisance. (laughs) Genius. A peripheral nuisance? That's what you said. Did I say that? Came out of your mouth. Really? You don't even know you said that, do you? No, not at all. You were channeling. Apparently. (laughs) That's really good. It's really good. Wow. Yeah. Will you remind... Don't let me forget that. No, I'm going to write it down straight away. Please do. All right. That's hilarious. I think we're done. I'm My coffee's getting cold. Yeah, we are kind of done. Um, Put I've a fork in I've really me. enjoyed this. Um, can I just also say that you've not even mentioned um, the, the, the... Which is definitely for another time. But I want you to talk at length on the... A part of your discovery around now the new historiography of the history of medicine mm-hmm. um, and especially herring in particular with the the use of the early nozodes you've not mentioned that oh right i hadn't no, 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 oh, so no spoiler alert spoiler alert. we were way ahead of the game no all right so that's it's it. good to be back on the horse all right, that's it, it. Take care, folks. We, um, we'll do it again. I know. And uh, look, apologies for our two-week hiatus. Was it really two weeks? It was two weeks. I feel bereft. Mm. All right. Done. <laughs> hey there. My name is Kaylee, and I'm a graduate of the Academy of Homeopathy Education. As a homeschooling mother of young children, I wanted to find a way that I could pursue my dream of becoming a professional homeopath. The faculty at AHE welcomed me with open arms, and helped me find my path. If you've been waiting for a sign to apply, this is it. AG is offering an early enrollment discount to help you get started. Learn more at aheonline.